Europe is going its own way. Are we experiencing the end of the American century? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. As Americans, what we know about events shaping the rest of the world tends to be exceptionally limited, as the mainstream media always plays to its advertisers. We are rarely informed about things that may eventually affect us here on this side of the pond. Sort of like the pre-Copernican belief that the sun went around the earth, the United States may not actually be the center of the world. Thanks in large measure to Donald Trump being seen as a loud, dim-witted fool by so much of the world, American hegemony and domination of the planet appears possibly to be nearing its end. So what's next, and what might this big shift turn out to be? A good thing, not only for Europe, Asia, South America, and Africa, but perhaps for us Americans as well. With us to look at Europe going its own way is Patrick Lawrence, a correspondent abroad for many years, chiefly for the International Herald Tribune. He's a columnist, essayist, author, and lecturer. His most recent book, which I do recommend, Time No Longer, Americans After the American Century. And we will mention his new book, which will be coming out at some point toward the end of the show. You can follow him on Twitter at The Flautist. I have never heard him play the flute. Well, Patrick, thank you for being with us once again. It's been a little while. You're yes, it has, Bert. It's delightful to be back and talking as we do. Uh, always excellent. You're well, always uh, an interview subject. Always knows when an interview has interviewer has done his or her yeah. homework, and it's very painful when somebody hasn't. But you've always <laughs> sure. done yours, and it makes for a great exchange. I do try. Well, your seemingly prescient book, Time No Longer, Americans After the American Century. While American military domination of the world really kicked off in 1898 with our war to take the Philippines, called the Spanish-American War, I don't know why, my sense is that our domination of Europe... The start of what's often called the American century came in 1945. That's a long time for Western Europe to have lived under America's global leadership. As you say, the continent of Europe had long been an independent pole of power. What factors have accelerated what you call the gradual but now unmistakable corrosion of the transatlantic alliance? Interesting. Okay, it's a good place to start. Uh, look, we can we can put a lot of this at Trump's doorstep. Uh, he uh, he began alienating the Europeans uh, very shortly after coming to office, uh, complaining about their NATO contributions and uh, NATO is obsolete and all that. That's a complicated question. I hope we get into the NATO thing a little more deeply. Uh, but then he pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, uh, and then the Iran Nuclear Accord. The Europeans greatly valued these, and still do, uh, for what they are, certainly, but also for what they represent. They represent uh, fruitful collaboration uh, in a multipolar world. Okay, they that's kind of the subtext of those two agreements, and they were 
very seriously wounded when Trump pulled out. That's part of the reason. Um, there's the content of those accords, and there's a, and there's what they stood for. Uh, however, so Trump has been very boneheaded with the Europeans, although although not on the topic of NATO, I will quickly add. Uh, yeah. uh, but uh, it do- hasn't started with Trump. Uh, we, we always, have, many of us make this mistake. If it weren't for Trump, everything would be fine. Untrue. Uh, uh, President Obama did a very fine job alienating the Europeans himself uh, um, with uh, the coup in Ukraine February 14, which was cultivated by the State Department, um, precipitated Russia's annexation, re-annexation of Crimea by a referendum everybody recognizes was fair, uh, uh, and then imposed sanctions. The Europeans were forced marched into that, um, not a posture unfamiliar to them. Yeah, really. But it greatly annoyed them because they have been trying to come to terms with the de facto obvious and de facto interdependence of the West European and Russian economies. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, those sanctions had to be renewed every six months. At each turn, at each six-month turn, there were more and more signals that the Euros were very unhappy about these. Um, uh, some nations more than others, the Italians, I think at one point the Greeks were uh, on board to just, and, and they could not be renewed absent consensus. So one dissenting mm. member, mm-hmm. they, they would be off. Uh, so it was a real battle every six months of diplomatic sort of stuff to get everybody on board. That also uh, shoved the Europeans away. So the drift, um, the drift in uh, U.S.-European relations predates Trump. Yes. Uh, we can say at least to Obama. But if your listeners are patient, we can talk about the Cold War and and how very, very ambivalent about the Cold War the Europeans were for reasons I just mentioned. Uh, is this necessary? Are we not better in a in a condition of detente with the Russians? Right. Uh, Especially for them, so, I would think. And and the Cold War. It's it's interesting. I'm I'm just started reading a book now about. Henry Wallace in 1948 being against the start of the Cold War and how Truman just created it. And what is, you know... The Americans created the Cold War. Of and any, any of your listeners who have difficulty with this uh, postulation mm-hmm. can look around now because we're in the process of creating another one with China and mm-hmm. it's the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And the, the, What's going on with China now is exactly what we did in the late 40s. Uh, it was so good for the military-industrial complex that that raving socialist uh, Dwight Eisenhower reminded us of. And as you say, the Europeans are no stranger to being force-marched. They don't no. like that kind of thing. They know exactly what that is. And here they are. They're physically closer to Russia than they are to the United States. And they're about business. You know, they want they want to be doing well. They need 
uh, gas, you know, natural mm-hmm. gas, and there's a lot of it in uh, in Russia and in the Balkans. And uh, it, 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 you know, why should they be pushed around by the U.S. and the I, I, you mentioned earlier the um, the nuclear deal. Why, how, I, I can only imagine here. I think you know Trump pictured it falsely. What a surprise that it was gonna well, you know that we were giving money to this terrorist regime, and people are buying it, which is amazing to me. But what what was in that for the Europeans? In the in the uh, Iran, Iran yeah nuclear deal the, the accord governing their nuclear program yes. Um, it's a good question, Bert, with a couple of dimensions. Right away, um, commerce, uh, the oil companies, Total and I think Elf, were right in there, ready to go with some um, joint ventures and such for Iran, you know, having to do with Iran's energy reserves. I think their oil reserves are fourth largest in the world, I, I think. That's big. Um, uh, so there was that, the practical stuff. But uh, also, Europe's relation to the Islamic world is quite different from ours. The Islamic world is their periphery across the Mediterranean, as lakes go, not a very large one. Yeah. And so uh, one of their 21st century imperatives is to find some sort of comprehensive settlement with Islamic nations, with with the Middle East, okay, as a whole. Uh, I remind your readers that uh, Iran is not an Arab country. Right. Uh, um, and so there was that too, right? Uh, Iran as an enemy is very convenient to some of us, uh, notably our Secretary of Obesity, as I call him, uh, uh, Pompeo. Yes, um, who we'll get to. But to the Europeans, it's much closer to home. It's a, you know, it has substance to it. It, it, has, it has practical reality to it. Uh, and they don't need enemies the way we do. <laughs> um, all that also goes into what was in this for the Europeans, right? Yep. Um, uh, Iran as a global pariah mm. is not convenient to very many other people to say nothing of the Iranians. That's not what I mean right now. Right. Uh, it's convenient to us because the defense yeah, sure. industries like it. The national security apparatus likes it. And, uh, you know, our uh, evangelical cabinet ministers like it. But the Europeans, that's not the story for them. I wonder uh, how they reacted when uh, Trump went in and assassinated that uh, that Iranian general. I cannot imagine the reaction across Europe. So, Soleimani. Yeah. Uh, I, I think they were appalled. It was a gross violation of uh, international law. Sure. Uh, and there was no reason. It was, it was sheer provocation. Yeah. Um, if you read the daily coverage at the time, and you had to read it quickly because they changed the story right away, uh, but uh, the early reports were that uh, Trump was in Mar-a-Lago doing his usual thing, and Pompeo and Esper flew to uh, Mar-a-Lago and 
told Trump, this is what we're doing. There was brief coverage indicating quite clearly that Trump was sold this. He didn't make it up himself. He didn't particularly desire it. Hmm. It was a Pompeo confection, right? Pompeo is quite quite the guy. He uh, He's one of these uh, religious nationalists. He's trying to... Uh... I, I, it, without any sort of hyperbole, Bert, um, I consider him the worst Secretary of State in our lifetimes. Well, the Dulles brothers, they were tough, too. They were bad. Yeah. Yeah, well, maybe there's competition there. <laughs> and you and I were alive then. Let this us is not... true dwell upon our age, but, you know. What one read in the Middle Eastern coverage, the better stuff, was that Soleimani was actually on a go-betweening mission at oh, that right, time. Right, do tell. He was transiting from Tehran to Saudi Arabia, probably Riyadh, with a back channel in the, in the course of, from what we can make out, rather developed back-channel contacts between Tehran and the Saudis, uh, arch-enemies, right? Looking for some kind of a sound settlement, peace agreement, whatever, uh, between these two longtime adversaries, right? That's what Soleimani was doing um, by the better reports. Of course, you never read it in the New York Times, and you never will. But uh, patently... Washington does not want a settlement no. between Iran and not only the Saudis, but anybody else in the Middle East. Right. They need them as a pariah. Yeah, absolutely. Have to have it. Uh, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The uh, show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We have a return guest, Patrick Lawrence, talking about a big change in Europe, Europe going its own way. And uh, it's kind of opening up a new world, and there's a lot of reasons for it, and opportunities as well as challenges for the United States. And you mentioned NATO. Uh, it was interesting how how Trump uh, said dis, you know uh, disrespected NATO to put it mildly, um, and and said, well, they should be paying more of their dollars for it, which it went over very popularly. The necessity of NATO, the North American Treaty Organization, I believe it's called, uh, has long been unquestioned in the U.S. And I, I had thought Europe as well. Now, your article, you know a little bit of history, that I didn't know, reminds us that Charles de Gaulle withdrew from France, uh, France from NATO in 1966. Does that sort of attitude prevail once again? What about this this NATO and, and yeah, European great. thought? Uh, I think it's always been below the surface, starting with the present. Trump is quite right that the Europeans do not come in with their fair share of NATO contributions. I think it's supposed to be 2% of GDP. I've always thought that's a completely artificial, very strange way to reckon up uh, the NATO budget. If, if peace prevails uh, and there's no need to spend money on armaments, rather arbitrary to say, you know, 2% of your GDP. But in any way, that's how it's been done. Uh, and uh, your listeners can go on the Internet and find it in two minutes. The, the Europeans, uh, Germans and others, have, not all, but uh, some, um, have been very lax in meeting the 2% uh, 
uh, bar, okay? Uh, but, as I said, figures don't lie. Why is that? I, I don't see how you can read that any other way uh, apart from, other than to conclude that the Europeans don't find NATO all that necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, if they did, they'd pay up. Uh, um, uh, so that's the present, okay? I, I think that's a sound reading of European attitudes toward NATO, all right? Yeah. We are now confirmed in this rather big time by one of the more interesting figures uh, in European politics today, uh, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, uh, who is very vociferous on a number of the topics you and I are considering uh, this afternoon, and one of them is NATO. And he gave a very lengthy interview with The Economist last when, last uh, last spring or summer, um, uh, observing that, that we are witnessing the brain death of NATO, right? I mean, uh, and what he intended to say was uh, it has no idea why it exists anymore uh, and it's wandering in the desert with no particular purpose and what in the world are we doing with this organization why is it there NATO doesn't have an answer to that question itself Um, now Macron um, is a somewhat uh, controversial fellow and many ways we can go into those if you want but he you know his his idealization of uh, de gaulle um is uh, a straight out variant of the idealization of churchill among post-war british prime ministers right every everybody wants to be the next churchill sure. Thatcher, and now boris johnson and so on and so forth right um. uh, well, not everybody. The labor M, the yeah. labor PMs don't. But, uh, um, and Macron has a very uh, elevated idea of himself. Um, I guess that's excusable in politics. Yeah, it happens. Uh, and he and he uh, he identifies quite closely with De Gaulle. In this respect, I think very very astutely. Uh, I don't like Macron in numerous respects uh he's an austerity right politics guy he never misses a chance to dismantle what remains of french social democracy and i I confess i'm a great francophile because i did some of my university studies in paris um uh but on this topic he's bang on he he is absolutely right um the uh The parallel assertion he makes is geography is destiny in our case. Um, We are destined to uh, coexist um, fruitfully with Russia. Uh, Russia is intrinsically part of Europe. That's a complicated thought, but one understands uh, what he means. Um, And it's time to get along with Russia instead of making it the the Beelzebub of our time, it doesn't do us any good. Uh, and that that's the background to his brain-dead NATO thought, right? And I think, honestly, again, using the 
Europeans' contributions to the NATO budget as a sort of informal index. I, I think uh, I think ambivalence about NATO uh, runs deep and and runs far back. I'm not saying they always hated it or anything. Uh, they were called warriors. I get that, um, but. Uh, ambivalent cold warriors i i will say mm-hmm. for a lot of it mm-hmm. uh, uh and uh you know in, in time it became quite clear as i think you're paying attention listeners will already know nato is just an american instrument an instrument yeah. through which the us projects power across the atlantic and mm-hmm. not incidentally maintains control over over uh, over its vassal states is too strong but over uh, its let's say junior partners right uh-huh. in Europe well we have we have really for a long time denied that we have an empire but we have an empire ever since the so-called Spanish-American war there is an empire there and certainly it was useful ever since Truman for the American military-industrial complex to have a bipolar world. Just, it's us against them. That was the case in the Greek Civil War, in Vietnam. Did that picture fit? Not really. And I wonder about, uh, you know, how... I, I can't help but think that the Europeans have chafed under the imposition of this so-called bipolar world for a long time. And... Uh, West European nations seem to be rethinking their relations with Russia now, and uh, how how do you think that that could benefit Europe first of all, and then maybe us as well? Yeah, um, the 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 Europeans have chafed, as you say, for a long time, um, but quietly. Uh, one of the points I was eager to bring forward in the column that brings us together um, is uh, why the Europeans, how how can one say on the one hand the Europeans are eager to go their own way um, and but on the other, uh, look at the record right Uh, and and they haven't for a long time I and friends have been disappointed quite literally for decades how come the Europeans can't find their own feet uh, uh, and the point I the point I was quite keen to bring forward is of uh, something I learned from a, a guy named Perry Anderson uh, founder of the new left review uh, um, verso books and a and international relations scholar of accomplishment. Uh, I think he's now, he's a Brit, but he's now retired from, I think, UCLA. Anyway, I did one of my long Q&A interviews with him a few years ago, and I asked him this question, what, what in the world is wrong with the Europeans, right? Uh, and he said, look, uh, <clears throat> uh, post-Churchill and De- Churchill and De Gaulle uh, were of a generation that understood Europe uh, as as being a pole of power unto itself. Remember, before forty five, the French and Brits had empires. Oh, right? yeah. mm-hmm. uh, 
<clears throat> but uh, after the 1945 victories, the, the, the emerging generation of leaders, they had no experience of that independence. The, their, their political experience was grounded in, uh, in American superiority uh, because of uh, the wreckage of Europe after 45 and then the Cold War. Uh, and they didn't know anything other than the American security umbrella, as we call it. Uh, that was their, the sum of their experience, right? Uh, now, I, I think that really is a, a thesis that holds water. Um, now, we have an emerge, another emerging generation of European leaders. Macron is 42. Ooh, These people don't have any great memory of the Cold War. It is not the grounding of their experience uh, in politics. Um, and what is happening? Uh, you know, it's rather symmetrical. Uh, they are saying, uh, what are we doing with this post-45 framework? It doesn't serve us. It's messing us up in the Middle East. We don't do well uh, making messes in Syria and Iraq uh, and Iran. Um, and we don't do well with uh, this uh, animosity, you know, this institutionalized animosity toward Russia. There's a lot to be gained in, in better mm. relations with all of these countries. I would say, first of all, Russia. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's how we come to this. I want to caution your listeners that my thesis uh, might be judged over overly optimistic. Uh, we've been waiting for the Europeans to go their own way for a long time, and it's easy to exaggerate <laughs> the, the thought now that they are. I do get that, but uh, I, I, I think that we have to look we have to look at the step-by-step step of it, okay? Uh -huh. I happened to be in Europe uh, when uh, Trump brought the house down over the climate thing and so on. Mm, uh, the Europeans imagine. absolutely freaked out, right? The uh, <laughs> French and Italian dailies were beside themselves. I quoted Coriel de la Serra in, mm -hmm. in, uh, in the column and... Um, also Merkel, right? Uh, they just couldn't believe it. We're going to have to stand on our own now, they said, no. right? Uh, so um, I'm talking about a gradual process. I'm not talking yes. about something that's going to happen tomorrow. I just intend to urge this afternoon your listeners to pay attention to the step-by-step -step of it. This is the drift that we are watching. As I mentioned in the column, it's very hard to see one's moment as a moment in history because because we're inside it, yes, right? We yes. can't see out. We don't have we don't have the the bird's eye view, but with a little effort, you can do that. Um, a little effort and a little reading and a little paying attention. And uh, my argument is, let's watch these steps. The, Nord Stream 2 pipeline well, dispute and so on. Uh, 
NATO, uh, the Russia question, uh, so everything many. Macron is saying. What's going on here? And uh, my take is that we are watching the sort of uh, glacial hmm. uh, movement of Europe yeah. well, that, uh, in its own direction. That's, that's, often, that's what I think. That's often how history happens. People, I think especially Americans, you know, we're used to, we want it right now. You know, there are people who say, you know, revolution or nothing. Never mind. Right. I think it's a good idea to get Trump out and then push Biden. It's step by step by step. We have to. It, that's the way history generally works. The idea of turning on a dime, it basically never happens. So we have to. It would be nice if more people understood history. Uh, and and one of the things you know, it just occurred to me, and I definitely want to get to uh, to Denmark, Africa. Trump has referred to Africa in not altogether complimentary terms, shall we say. <laughs> what a diplomat you would have made, Bert. <laughs> well, we'll see. what. Uh, I would think that's a very, very large potential audience and trading partners for Europe. I mean, there's a lot of resources there. What about uh, Europe and Africa right now? They're right there. Yeah. Well, uh the world's been waiting for the African Renaissance for a long time, yeah. right? A uh, couple of decades, anyway. Uh, and, you know, there are many signs that Africa is about ready to pop. You know, um, education levels, uh, infrastructure, uh, investment, and so forth. And, you know, it's paradise for resource exploitation and all Absolutely. that, as you say. Right? Uh, and <clears throat> the Euros had colonies there, right? Oh, yeah. There's still Francophone Africa, um, relations among the Francophone, the relations of Francophone nations with Paris are not uncomplicated. But, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a culture of uh, familiarity there, right? Uh, uh, <clears throat> the English, the British uh, have the Commonwealth, right? Yeah. Same thing. So they're, they're, I would say, way better positioned than we are um, to make the most of African uh, development uh, as it comes along. Why not? You know, uh, and we're not going to do it. This is not lost on them. Yeah, we're not no, gonna we're not going to do it. No. Right? Uh, all we do is complain about the Chinese uh, as, they, <clears throat> as they do dreadful things like build roads and factories in Africa, right? It's just simply awful. Oh, right? terrible. Uh, yeah, mean, yeah. It's unbelievable how, I mean, <clears throat> a just... Couple of, <clears throat> a couple of summers ago, I think I came to stay with you at the time. I, Quite possibly. I gave a lecture at the Star oh, yes. Island. You did. International Relations Conference, right? Mm -hmm. And who was one of the administrators but a, a lovely lady named Obasanjo, right? I, I said to her afterward, uh, you have a very distinguished name and and she said oh that's just dad her father was uh Obasanjo, the president of um, nigeria <laughs> ah. um and she started we started talking i don't know why about about the chinese in africa uh -huh. um, and, and uh she said you know when you're walking around over there uh you know you'll you'll come upon a dirt road uh, 
and you'll ask the villagers where it leads to, and it leads to a Chinese factory uh, where they are making who knows what ballpoint pens. Yeah, whatever. You know? Yeah, um, and and you know this is the story, right? Um, but we can't compete. Somebody just pointed this out uh, <clears throat> this morning on the social media. If we were going to compete with China, we would have to have a well-paid working class, right? Mm. Um, we used to have that. And, uh, I know. <laughs> and, 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 and all the other things that one needs to be a strong competitor in the international economy. But we, we don't have any of that. Uh, and so we complain, and we throw logs in the road and so mm. on. <laughs> but look... Um, we're drifting into the China question. Uh, well, but Europe... As, I mean, as with Africa, uh, ditto with China. The, Ch the Europeans are not keen on Pompeo's new Cold War with the Chinese. Not at all. Of course all, not. Of course right? not. Uh, good does uh, it do that? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I want to add one other thing here. Sure, uh, please do. When we say the Europeans, um, we mustn't make the mistake of assuming they're a completely homogenous oh population, and yeah. they all think the same thing. Right. There are plenty of hawks. There are plenty of China hawks and Russia hawks and so on um, among the Europeans. Sure. You know, you see this. We saw it recently with this Navalny uh, uh. alleged poisoning, which is proven nonsense at this point. But, you know, there were a lot of right-wing Germans who were on board for using it to uh, sabotage relations between Berlin and Moscow um, uh, in order to block the pipeline project. Uh, if, if you want to go into that. Well, I'd like to ask about Denmark thinking of the pipeline. Uh, yeah. Denmark, not exactly a military powerhouse. What have they done to shift power away from Washington's control? And how has Washington reacted? Right. Uh, well, <clears throat> A little background here. Um, the Russians have one pipeline now delivering gas to Europe. Uh, it runs through Ukraine, and that's problematic uh, because at various times the Ukrainians have been siphoning off gas. They have not been paying their, the bills for their share of the gas that passes through, right? Um, and then there was the coup and the new government in Kiev is radically anti-Russian. Okay. Uh, so the Russians decided, let's have a second pipeline, uh, mm -hmm. running not south through Ukraine to Europe, uh -huh. but a Northern route, so to say, uh -huh. under the Baltic sea. Sure. It's called Nord Stream 2, uh, and the two means there are actually two pipelines uh, running side by side um, under the Baltic. Now, the route was established, the construction began, everybody's very uh, keen on it. Uh, uh, Nord Stream 2's European terminals are in the uh, German ports, uh, along the Baltic. Um, 
and the Trump people uh, powered by the oil and gas lobbies and so forth <coughs> settled on this <coughs> pardon me um, as something that is worth disputing <coughs> we we want the European gas market right? uh, um, this New pipeline Nord Stream 2 will deliver 55 billion cubic feet of natural gas to the Europeans uh, every year. I, I don't, I don't know proportionally uh, what share that is of the European consumption, but it's Sounds large. Like a lot. Yeah. Um, and so the American proposal was uh, had a couple of dimensions to it. Let's not let the Europeans get too close to those Russians. That was part of it. And the commercial side was, we want that gas market. It's kind of parallel motivations. Um, the problem is that <clears throat> the Nord Stream 2 is <clears throat> hugely efficient. Um, and the American counterproposal has been, no, 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 we'll, we'll ship it to you by We'll send it to you by ship, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and that would require not only the huge costs of loading it on ships and transporting it by surface across the Atlantic, but then these really complicated <clears throat> port facilities in Germany uh, in order to offload the stuff, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I, I, the figure I heard was that American natural gas delivered in this way would be about 40% more expensive than the gas arriving by way of Nord Stream 2. Mm -hmm. right. So the route was fixed. The construction began. The Americans kept arguing about it. Um, and these arguments got very intense uh, during uh, Pompeo's tenure as Secretary of State. Um, and um, he began threatening sanctions uh, uh, against any company participating in the construction. Right? Uh, and these are called secondary sanctions, right? Uh, mm. Secondary sanctions are very, very powerfully vicious um, mm. because they pull everybody out of, you know, it's it's not only we are not going to deal with the Iranians or the Russians or the Venezuelans, but you can't either. Right. Uh, so it's got quite intense. I think that's why the the Navalny, the, the Navalny uh, charade uh, erupted in large measure because it, the Nord Stream 2 is now 95% done. Mm. Um and at just this moment, uh, the the route across the Baltic, uh, east to west from Russia, runs through various countries, uh, over various countries' continental shelves. Um, and Denmark has a, a a segment of the pipeline was to run across uh, Denmark's territorial waters. Not a long stretch, but you know they they had that was the route. If if the Danes didn't come on, it would be trouble. Mm -hmm. um, a year ago, they approved the route, 
And um, when I wrote the column, they had just approved uh, the operate. They had just given permission for the operators of Nord Stream Two to function in Danish territorial waters. Um, I was struck by what the Danes did because of the timing of it. Mm. A year ago, they voted for Nord Stream 2, and two weeks ago, they voted again for it. But when they voted for it again two weeks ago, um, the American campaign had, had greatly uh, intensified. The Navalny case was raging, right? Uh, Pompeo was touring Europe relentlessly, lobbying them not to go forward and to to make sure they hated the Russians right. uh, as much as they're told to hate them. Uh, and and so the Danes, the, the peaceable Danes, as you say, they're you know they're not a military powerhouse. They're not the world's most powerful nation, other than by example. Mm. Um, and. Uh, Remember, Bernie liked the Danes. Right? Oh, my goodness. Horrible. <laughs> anyway, we, to finish the thought, sure. it was the timing of the Danish announcement that was, uh, as these things go in diplomacy, um, uh, uh, an all but direct vote against Washington on the Nord Stream 2 thing, and an all but direct vote in favor of Europe going its own way. Mm-hmm. The practical the case happens to be a gas pipeline, but in the larger context, again, let's see our moment as a speck of history. In in the larger context, the Danes were saying, we're Europeans. Let's do something in our own interest from now on. Oh, my. What a concept. So, huh. yeah. It's, it's fascinating. I hope I was clear on that. Oh, point. I think so. And if I'm hearing it right, maybe Denmark has more sway than Washington in Europe now, little Denmark with no military power whatsoever. Uh, right. And, and, and well, they have a, they have more territorial waters in Washington. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for those in, who may have, in Europe, I mean. for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. It is a group effort, folks. I hope everybody's going to go out there and vote. And with us today is Patrick Lawrence. Who's, we're looking at uh, Europe going its own way finally, and the. The U.S. Uh, power over them is is really uh, diminishing, and it's going its own way. And we mentioned, of course, uh, 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 um, Ukraine and Crimea. The U.S. reaction to annexing Russia annexing Crimea was very different from the European reaction. And again, all these countries, you know, they, they're not guided by morality; they're guided by what's in their own personal, you know, with their own, their own yeah, interests. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't wish to, um, I, I, I don't wish to be glorifying the West European, the industrialized West European nations, right? Uh, they've got plenty of sins on their list. Uh, <laughs> they're not angels, but uh, in many respects, right? France has been right in there bombing the Syrians with us and all the rest of it, right? Uh, but um, they have the potential. I mean, when the Cold War ended and uh, our unipolar 
moment was upon us. The conventional wisdom that uh, Europe was very yesterday, right? Hmm. Uh, I think Dick Cheney used to use the phrase, you know, old Europe. Oh, right. Like they're, old Dick Cheney. they're rather beside the point, you know, they had their quaint villages and, and yeah. customs, but who gives a right. damn about the Europeans? Right? That, that was this post-Cold War sentiment. I'm not for that. I, I think Europe has the potential to take a really significant place in an emergent world order, in effect between West and East, right? Uh, not that it will turn anti-American, that's not at all on the table. I don't mean to imply that. By escaping what we can call the suffocating embrace, they can play a really instrumental, primary role in forming a, a coherent, functioning, peaceable world order, post-American world order, right? They're, look at the map. Their place on the landmass, okay? They're between Russia and the states, right? They're on the right. they're on the periphery of the Middle East. Although we always put it the other way around, the Middle East is the European periphery. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, again, look at a map. They're the western end of China's big Belt and Road Initiative. Right. That's their oh, fate. Their fate is to sit between mm -hmm. East and West, right? Uh, and I think Europe could play a a really, you know, in in some ways quite unexpected, uh, un unforecasted role in uh, in a world order that is gradually emergent. Um, and I've often said in the columns, the number one imperative of the 21st century is the achievement of parity between West and non-West. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the Europeans are far more prepared to accept this than we Americans are. Yeah, we're not running the show. We like to be... Uh, well, it does seem that Trump has, has really exemplified it and been sort of a caricature of being the big bully. And you know, a lot of people don't like that. It's kind of childish, really. And yeah. we don't have the, you know, the, the financial power to do it anymore. And there's so many other things. I mean, the gas pipeline is, is a big deal. You know, it's they need it. It's their decision. And all right, talk about us looking a little bit silly. COVID-19. The world sees that America has done terribly with the crisis. And Europe is having some difficulties, too. But is that a, a factor in, in Europe going its own way, or, or how does COVID-19... I, I think so. Um, you know, uh, in '45, uh, it was quite true we were the envy of the world. You know, we yes. had it by the tail. Mm -hmm. uh, our system worked, it proved out. We had a very strong economy, strong industries, and so forth, right? Uh, and part of the Cold War was waged um, culturally, and also economically, we, we had to we had to show we had a better model than the alternative than than the socialist alternative. That was really important. That's why our working class was so well paid. That's why our working class was allowed to unionize. Right? Uh, everybody had to be happy. Uh, 
but with the end of the Cold War, or even before, like uh, by the time Reagan took office, it wasn't really that important to prove to the rest of the world that we our alternative was better than the socialist alternative. So we let it all go. Ah. And, and, and now COVID brings it all out. We have a miserable health care system. Yeah. Um, our, our working class are out in the streets begging for food. Um, the, the infrastructure is junk. We, we uh, third world. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, and we haven't been able to organize even the simplest things like tests, right? It's, it's just a shock. I, I, I think the Europeans now, and there have been a few things in the papers about this, the Europeans have, we've gone from, in 75 years, exactly, mm-hmm. we've gone from the envy of the world to the, the pity of the world, mm. right? Uh, they, their attitudes, you know, they can hardly believe that their eyes uh, at this point. But I think COVID has brought all this, this was in the wind for a long time. And uh, I, mm-hmm. I think the significance of COVID has been, it really has landed us hard. Uh, it really has brought out the abject failure of so many of our institutions and systems and in uh-huh. general ways of doing things, right? Uh, don't forget the European political European political culture has been rooted for a long time in one or another form of social democracy. This has been decaying uh, since the so-called Washington Consensus, and you got European countries uh, signing on for the most awful austerity programs and so on, right? Uh, But it's still there. Uh, uh, France has a very strong state sector. L'État, the state, Mm -hmm. really counts in France. It makes it easier for them to do things. It makes them easier for them to organize in the face of a pandemic and Mm. so forth. Mm -hmm. As you say, they've got problems. Just last night, Macron announced a curfew. Wow. Mm. Nine o'clock in the evening until six in the morning. I can't imagine what Paris must look like these days. But they're able to get things done in a way we can no longer get anything done. Right. And I did want to ask, and it's always fun to talk about uh, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo. You write that, quote, the Vatican has little immediate sway in European politics, end of quote. Referring to Stalin here, the Pope has no military divisions. Right. The Pope does have broad, intangible, but significant power and influence. Tell us, please, about Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and the Pope. As you say, Pope Francis is quite energetic in his criticism of Pompeo and the effects of the American economic ethos. That must have some sway over Europe. I I really like Papa Francisco. Oh, yeah. He's a real guy. He's a mensch. He, yeah, perfect. He, he, you know, he's got ideas, he's got convictions. He has a, a clear vision of the world and what's going on in it. Uh, and he speaks his mind, right? A um, couple of things happened just before I sat down to write that column. Uh, Pompeo requested an audience, you know, his, his Bible-thumping uh, way at things, right? Uh, expecting to recruit the Vatican into his 
anti-Chinese crusade. Oh my! And and the Pope, well, Rome is the Vatican is now negotiating a new, a renewal of a treaty with Beijing, whereby it has some say in choosing uh, Chinese bishops. It's a very complicated topic. We don't have time for it now, but uh, the Catholic Church relationship with China has been rough, uh, but they're making gradual progress. Uh, And uh, Pompeo didn't want the Pope to sign that renewed uh, agreement. Um, And uh, and, uh, when he requested an audience, uh, Mm -hmm. the Pope's uh, Secretary of State, uh, as I said in the column, uh, politely told Pompeo to perform the act of love on himself, right? Uh Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, You know, no audience with that was a real shutdown. I think the very next day, the Pope was in uh, Assisi, uh, the home of uh, the famous St. Francis, and signed an encyclical authoritative documents and denouncing neoliberal economics and uh, the empire of money, as he calls it, and uh, you know, just global avarice and mistreatment of people and inequality and hunger and all that sort of stuff. And the wording, no nations were named, that's not how these things work. Mm. Uh, But the wording was such that uh, it was unmistakable that, uh, and he wasn't letting the Europeans off the hook, but the economic model he was attacking is ours. Uh, oh, clearly. And we don't have much yeah. time left, but I did want to ask a couple things. One more thing here. Okay, Bert. go ahead, please. Uh, his, he doesn't have a lot of political power, right? but he has great moral authority. And by saying those things in the encyclical and doing what he did to Pompeo, no, go away, he essentially uh, validated the, the alternative of turning the Americans back, right? Yeah. That was my point. Anyway, and I'm it, sorry and, to interrupt. No, not at all. Um, could this be, I mean, this is something new for the U.S. We're no longer the gorilla in the room. I wonder if this is something potentially really positive uh, for the United States as well, a, a, an opportunity to redefine ourselves, uh, a new opportunity I, for America. I wish more of us could uh, could understand that. It is a It is a splendid moment if we get off the pedestal. How wonderful will it be for a multiplicity of voices to address all the common challenges that humanity faces, you know? uh, All this supposed responsibility we have, uh, it should be shared responsibility. It will be a huge, huge lifting of the burden, of of a self-imposed burden we have claimed for ourselves. Uh, Yeah, very salutary. Um, but what you're talking about, Bert, needs to boil down to this. It's not a question of loss. It's only a question of loss if your metric is power. Uh, it's a question of gain altogether in infinite number of other ways. Uh, and I, I hope over time more of us can appreciate that. 
Oh, I think um, it'll happen. I think we'll see it. I don't. I do too. But yeah. we got to put people in office who understand that, and there ain't no sign of it at the moment. <laughs> it's for sure. All right, your book that that I read that I highly recommend: "Time No Longer: Americans After the American Century." Tell us briefly about the new one. It's not out yet. Uh, the new one is called "The Journalist in His Shadow." I took the title from Nietzsche. That's too long to explain. Okay. But um, I started writing an essay about the crumbling of the American press. It's in worse shape than it has been in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. One just can't believe what it has done to itself. But I wanted to put it in historical context. I wanted to go back to the Cold War, and the the thesis simply stated uh, is the American press had a very bad Cold War and never recovered from it because it refused to face up to the errors, its errors during the Cold War decades. It has never acknowledged them or faced them. CIA collaboration and all the rest of it, right? And that's what's behind the mess we are in now. And as I was writing the essay, my editor, first of all, he said, I want you to put some memoir and autobiography and reflection in it, because my professional career spanned a lot of the Cold War and since, of course. Uh, And then a little while later, he said, you know that essay you're writing? Make it a book. So that's the book. As I told you before we went on the air, I got it off my desk yesterday afternoon. It's due to come out next spring. I hope we have a chance to talk about it. I hope so. At the right moment. Well, let's hope we can make the most of this exceptional moment in history. It is very... Very positive as well. Thank you so much, Patrick Lawrence, for being with us once again on Keeping Democracy Alive. And I uh, really appreciate uh, you being here and the opportunity to discuss Absolutely, this Absolutely, Burton. You stay alive, too. <laughs> you too. Thank you. Cheers, man. You can go your own way.